Hi, I'm BJ, and this is the Arcane Alienist Podcast. BJ, what's up, dude? Your last episode was awesome, man. I, I loved hearing you talking about how, because you felt more comfortable making a Pathfinder 2 character, you were having a lot of fun making the character. I, I hear that 100%. I've never gotten to play in a game where I play two separate characters, but I think I'd probably really like it because I love making characters, man. And your, your, half, elf, your half elf deck space cleric ranger sounds awesome, dude. That's, mm, man, good call. And yeah, for sure, Pathfinder 2 absolutely holds a soft spot, a special place in my heart. It's given me so much over the years. I mean, I probably wouldn't even be on Anchor if it wasn't for Pathfinder 2. And now there's a whole bunch of people that just got a new reason to hate Pathfinder 2. <laughs> anyway, man, peace out. Well, thanks, Joe. It's good to hear from you. Yeah, I had a lot of fun making characters. I love making characters. I'll, I'll talk about the, a little bit that here in the, in the end of my first segment. Um, because we are talking about character building a little bit today, although I'm going to talk more about backstory as opposed to building the, the class and the feats and, and all the, the bells and whistles. But um, yeah, I, I really do enjoy character building. Uh, it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of fun to see what kind of characters you can come up with. Um, even, even just, I think there's a little sub hobby within the hobby of people just building characters in their, in their spare time when they, when they have a, a chance um, and a little, little free time on their, their hands. Um so yeah, thanks for the the compliments. I still am looking forward to the day you and I can get together and play. Well, anything really. Although I, I'd really enjoy. I think we'd really. I'd really enjoy playing in any of your Pathfinder games. I don't know how you'd find me as a DM. Carl seems to tolerate me pretty well. So, uh, so I got that going for me in terms of recommendation. And none of my other players have run away screaming. So, <laughs> hopefully, it'll happen sooner than later. But uh, yeah, thanks again for the call. Everybody, that was Joe Richter of the Hindsightless Podcast. Please be sure and check out. You, you can find his podcast here uh, on Anchor or on most podcatchers. And he, he talks about Pathfinder 2 being the reason he's, he's even in podcasting. He has uh, a podcast that he isn't doing anymore, but way back when Pathfinder 2, he first started, uh, he and some of his friends did the Wheel or Woe podcast where they, they, they lived they, they recorded their uh, their Pathfinder 2 campaign, and it's still out there to to, uh, to enjoy. So go take a listen. Uh, so now I'm going to turn to my first segment here, which is about a little bit about character building, but it's more about some thoughts I have on character backgrounds. I want to talk a little bit about character backstories, but I'm going to start start edit from kind of an odd angle. So just bear with me for, for a few minutes. Um, one of the design goals that you see in 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons, and it actually started in 4th edition, um, it kind of came late in 4th edition, but that they carried forward into 5th edition, was the idea of having people with different who wanted to different complexities for their characters to be able to play at the same table. So if I want to play a straight up fighter, which is embodied in the champion archetype for the fighter class, there are not a whole lot of decisions to be made. It's just sort of a, a generic standard fighter. It just kind of, you level up and you, you get your abilities and it's really simple. It's, it's, it's a perfect 
choice for someone who has never played Dungeons and Dragons if they're going to dive in, particularly with fifth edition. There's not a lot of fiddly bits. It's very straightforward. And if you play the the champion fighter, you're mostly going to be learning the core mechanics of D and D that apply to to whatever class you're playing. And so that was the design goal for the champion. If you look by contrast to the battle master archetype for the fighter, where you get to pick and choose a, a, an array of maneuvers, much the way a, a spellcaster might choose their spells. Um, so you get so you get maneuvers that you, that you can use <clears throat> in uh, in combat, and you can pick different subsets of them to kind of build different types of fighters with the battle master. But player one can play a battle master and player two can play a champion and they work perfectly well at the same table in the same party on the same adventures. Uh, and so the idea was not to force someone who just wanted a simple kind of fighter to play to have to deal with complexity that they didn't really care about versus someone who really finds building and customizing their character <clears throat> um, finds that very interesting and to not deny them that option. And I think that at least with the first round of, of, of class options in the player's handbook, that was the idea that there would be, you know, multiple choices that you could get for the, the archetype or the theme of your character. But within each class, I wanted to give one basic one that was the most easy to run for people who didn't want to get into a lot of uh, theory crafting and, and, and system mastery and, and things like that. So uh, that was the idea with class functions in D&D. In, in and Mike Merles and Jeremy Crawford made that very apparent in their kind of discussions during the play test and when the fifth edition first came out and the final products, you know, again, reiterated that that was sort of the goal with having different archetypes. Some are more complex than others within each class. And the fighter provides a very, very good example of that. Uh, so what does that have to do with backstories? Well, you've got some players who all they really want to do is pick a name and alignment. Um, and, and they have some vague notion of their character's personality. And that's all they that's all they want to put into their character. That doesn't make them a bad player. Um, that, that may just be where they start out with the character. And they may grow into the person's, you know, the character's personality over time and then flesh them out a little bit as well as maybe fleshing out some some ideas of the backstory. But but that's really all they, they want to get in. They just want to play. They don't want to make a lot of choices. You've got other people who can't really sink their teeth into the character they've created unless they create a more detailed backstory. Um, and the, you know, the, you know, we've all heard the horror stories of DMs who, who somebody hands them a 12 page backstory and expects them to read all this. And also supposedly I've never actually encountered this, they, they want all that incorporated into the way you, you, the DM sets up their campaign. Uh, so the DM now has to make their own choices about encounters and, and the, the sequence of events and what's going on in the world based on uh, this person's backstory. Um, and you've got variations in between. Again, I don't know if that really happens, but you hear about it a lot in D&D, that ex that ex online anyway, about that extreme example of, of a huge backstory that the player really wants the DM to know. I know people who want the, who will write a lengthy backstory in their head. They don't expect the DM to do much with it, though. They just need it to, that's what they need in order to get into the headspace to play their character. And that's okay. And I guess what I'm getting at here is 
is it possible to run a campaign that allows for all of that? I mean, a group has to be cohesive. They have to get along. They have to play well together to, to play uh, in, in, a, in a role-playing game. Um, but do they all have to have the same play style and the exact same expectations? I, mean, I guess if they're too disparate and too far removed from one another, then maybe they're just not compatible. But generally speaking, most people who enjoy the game can, can settle into a balance. And it's important for, the, I think, a DM to know, and I'm not the first one to suggest this, to know what motivates each of your players so that you're given a little bit of what they enjoy pretty regularly throughout the game. So if you've got someone who really enjoys tactical combat, make sure you put some tactical combat in. If you've got someone who really enjoys role-playing scenes with, with, with NPCs, put that in there. But if you've got both of those people in the party, you need to balance those two things so that they don't one doesn't overshadow the other. And also so that whatever motivates and drives all the other players at the table, they get their chance to to be a part of that. And that's when I think of backstories, I think of the, the same thing. Is some people are going to want a complex backstory. Some people are going to want a, a simple backstory. And there'll be people who are somewhere in between. And it may be a good idea as a game master to know where your, your players stand on that twist someone's arm to give you a complicated backstory if that's not really what they're interested in if they're if they're, they're cool just kind of making kind of a vague backstory and and uh getting into the game and just interacting with the environment you present for them um that's that's really uh that's fine um and then if you got someone who really wants to 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 have that more grounded fleshed out history for their character that's fine as well but but again you want to kind of balance or, or, or um, weave together the way you run the game so that they're getting what they want from those backstories within reason. Um, as a player, I think it's important to remember that as well, that the, the person sitting to the table next, next to you at the table isn't doing it wrong if they have a far more detailed backstory than you prefer or if they have a far more simpler backstory than you. Just, just let them run their character, manage their character. And along the way, everybody's going to fall in and find their role and their niche and, and, and the kind of thing they bring to the table. And so that's fine. But uh, I, I think a lot of people, a lot of old school players will sometimes get a little crotchety about <laughs> particularly younger, not, not just young, either younger players or p maybe even players our own age who have only recently come into the hobby where it's more normal to have these big detailed backstories and we might get a little cranky about that. And I think we, we deserve to, uh, you know, cut, cut the new guys some slack if that's what they need to, to role play. But also it's important if you're a newer player and that's kind of been your experience to understand there are lots of people who don't play that way. And even newer players that don't want to, that maybe aren't interested in playing that way. So, um, you know, we're not all, uh, you think of something like critical role, which I, they talk about the critical role effect, the Matt Mercer effect. I don't believe it's that really big of a deal. I think it certainly inspired a lot of people to, to, to take up the hobby and it has influenced, I think probably younger players a little more that they do. My experience has been younger players who've been exposed to watching live play, particularly with produced shows like critical role and some of the other ones that you can find on YouTube that have a lot of professional content creators. They are a little more active prone to ham it up and speak in first person when we're in role-playing situations. And that's fine. That's wonderful. Not everybody plays like that, particularly people who may be a little more introverted. Um, but I, I bring up critical role to say that I don't 
you know, you know, they they they're all professional actors, professional storytellers. Of course, they're going to flesh out those characters and give them detailed backstories that they may not share them up front, but they'll be doled out and revealed over the course of the campaign. Um, and they create, you know, strong, eccentric, interesting personalities and and mannerisms and voices for their characters. Uh, but they're professional entertainers, so I don't think we have to do that as, as sort of just hobbyists at our at our own game tables. Um, so, so I don't think we need to be expecting that. I don't think DMs should expect that a players and players shouldn't expect to bring that to the table and, and that every DM is going to make time for that. Um, and then it's another good thing to have session zero um, and frequent check-ins if you're with a group of players who are kind of relatively new to playing with each other and may have um, varying expectations going in, particularly when it comes to backstory, color de- backstory character development, character arcs. Uh, and the kind of things that will grow out of a backstory, you know, um, there's no right way or wrong way of doing that. It's just whatever suits your table and and the interests of the people playing the game in any given at any given time. Uh, so, for me personally, uh, I tend to not do a lot of detailed backstory unless someone asks me of it, asks it for me. I I, I tend to. I tend to think more of maybe the person's personality, what they're like to uh, to, to interact with as, as a character uh, and more of their personality traits and their motiva- core motivations and things like that. But maybe that's because I'm a psychologist and that's the first place I am. Of course, I know good and well that in our own lives, those things are all heavily influenced by our backstories. But um, for my characters, I, I tend to focus on, on what it's going to be like to watch, if you were going to watch that character go through a scene <laughs> or, or an encounter uh, what's everybody else going to see and then and then the backstory i can fill in details later as needed um but, but I, I like to get a, my head just just my head around um you know the person's thoughts and their feelings and their motivations and then i can create a little bit of a backstory just to kind of get myself going and then flesh it out later depending on what the uh, the campaign is like and again as a player I'm a kind of player who thinks of, who, who more wants to play the world. I, I, I don't want to create. I mean, I, I'll sit there and, and, and create characters when I'm bored and think I'll play this sometime. Um, but in, in the end, when I, when I get a chance to play in a campaign, usually I, I want to know what the campaign setting is, what, where we are, what world we're in, what it's like, what the culture is like and what, what's going on, because I want to create a character that, that is suited for the campaign and su- suited for the campaign world. I want to play the world. I don't want to create a character in a vacuum and then try to shoehorn it into someone else's space, um, it, whether it's the DM or, or even to, to you know maybe inadvertently create a character that isn't suited for the, the party. I'd also kind of like to know what everybody else is playing when, we, when, I, when I create a character so that I can create something that'll be fun for me to play easy on the DM and also will work well with everybody else's characters. So we can all, again, it's a group activity. D and D is a team sport. Uh, so those are my thoughts on backstory. Uh, it can be complex. It can be simple. We need to make space for people who want complex and simple stories to be able to play together. Um, as long as their play styles are otherwise compatible. And again, as always, it's just something that everybody needs to talk about whenever you're, starting a campaign, whether, and, and I, I'm talking in terms of D&D mostly, because that's mostly what I play, but of course, this is any kind of role-playing game uh, during character creation. So, uh, anyway, I would love to hear responses 
what people think about this, what their preferences are for backstories, how they create backstories, what DMs think of how they use players' backstories, and what kind of guidance they give players. Um, so, uh, yeah, give me some calls out there. Uh, I expect maybe we'll hear from some of the usual callers, but if there's anybody out there who's never called in before, uh, I'd love to hear some new voices. You can also email me, arcane.alienist at gmail.com, and I'll be happy to just read your message and uh, give, a, give, a, give a response on, the, on an upcoming episode. Um, so that's it for Backstories. This is a little long overdue. I want to do a review of Carcass Crawler issue number two. This is uh, Carcass Crawler is the official zine of Old School Essentials. It presents some some optional rules for use with Old School Essentials. I recall that Old School Essentials, in its pure form, uh, the core rule book is really just uh, Moldbay and Cook's old BX D and D. They just uh, it's just those very same rules. Uh, but we have the advanced, which which gives us some options to make it a little more like first edition AD&D. Uh, not mechanically, but at least in terms of your character options and the monsters and spells available. Uh, and the Carcass Crawler tends to present you with options that you could use either with classic or with advanced. Um, and so this is the second issue. So let's dive in and look at what we got here. It's got a nice, uh, uh, looks like a giant... Um, uh, some kind of colossus, some kind of, some kind of giant construct on the front, kind of walking, <laughs> walking up out of the ocean with some, some, some people, somebody running away in terror. Um, uh, so it kind of looks maybe like maybe, uh, you know, maybe inspired by the Colossus of Rhodes. It looks a little bit like a storm giant, but it also looks like it's made out of either stone or, or iron. Maybe it's an iron golem. Anyway, uh, so, uh, what do we got here in, in, in this issue? We've got uh, we've got two new types of elves, uh, and these are presented as classes. If you want to do the classic BX, and then they're presented as race options. If you're using the advanced option to, to do separate race from class, um, the first one is a phase elf, uh, and this harkens back. What, what uh, Gavin Norman says in here is, and it partially harkens back to the old uh, idea from original D and D, where an elf was both a fighter and a magic user, but they picked at the beginning of every adventure what they were going to be. Um, and so they, they, they just switched between classes uh, rather than having this sort of blended elf class that you see in BX. Uh, and, and it wasn't really... I've looked through the old rules. It's not always clear exactly whether that was supposed to be a multi-class or, or whether you divided the experience or whether you just, you know, based on the XP amount you've got you're this level fighter or this level magic user and it just your level is defined on by that one pool of xp and just what you're going to be that day anyway that's what we get here we get a, an elf who can um choose whether they're going to be uh a, a more of a warrior or a magic user for for the time being so uh their their primary requisite minimum intelligence of nine primary requisites are intelligence strength hit die 1d6 Maximum level 10, they're, they're proficient in all armor and weapons. Um, and so it looks very much like the, uh, if you look at the experience table, very much like the elf class uh, that you're used to in BX. Um, and with the spell progression, but it notes that's when they're in a ma the magic user phase. Um, so uh, 
here's sort of the this also though seems to to tap into the modern version of the Illidrin from from fifth edition D and D that kind of chooses a phase to be in and then maybe takes on a little bit of different sorts of powers and a different different demeanor. In fact, this notes that uh, one one of the traits of the phase elf is a dual persona. Uh, they have two independent but interconnected personae or phases: their fighter phase and their magic user phase. Of course, five e Illidrin, it, it, they go through the seasons. They have a winter phase, a summer phase, an autumn phase, and a spring phase. But uh, each morning upon waking, the character can choose to switch to the other phase. This is called phasing. Phasing is possible at most once per day. Um, and their, their, their abilities are going to be dependent on which class they're using. Uh, when in the fighter phase, the fighter phase, the character's eyes are pure white. In the magic user phase, their eyes are pure black. The two phases have knowledge of one another, but they're, they're too they're different personalities. They can even have different alignments. They share the same name, but their personalities and goals may differ. Um, that's a really cool idea. Uh, harkening back to the Cerebrivore episode we did on um, mental health, I would once again say this is getting into something similar to maybe a real world types of uh, dissociative identity disorder or personality disorders. If you're going to play this character, just please do it respectfully with, 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 um, you know, I would treat it as a completely fantastic phenomenon and, and not try to pin it on any attempt to, to, to create a character that has multiple actual multiple personality disorder or anything like that. Um, they're immune to ghoul paralysis, have infravision listening at doors. So, so pretty much otherwise like, like a, like the elf class. Um, so we get the phase elf, but then we get, with respect to old school advance, the oper- option of having a phase elf as a race and not a class, so it would choose their classes. Um, and so, again, it, it would have the, the standard elf abilities by race, the immunity to ghoul paralysis, improvision, listening at doors, bonus. Here, the, the, the dual persona, the elf has two independent but interconnected persona, again, described as phases. And they must select two classes. And because when you go the advanced option, elves are capable of choosing from several different classes, you would just pick the two classes. Upon each morning awakening, they again choose their class, their the class, their phase. Um, and they use, because they don't have a, a unified class table, they use the, the FACO and saves for the, the current phase class that they're in. Uh, their class abilities do that. They have a single pool of hit points shared by both phases, and this would, you would treat it like you often do with multi-classing, where um, you, you roll the hit dies and they get half the value. Uh, experience points are tracked separately. So this is basically a multi-classed elf. It's just they can only make use of one class at a time. Um, and again, it notes their eyes change color and they're, they're two interconnected but distinct personalities that might have different goals um, or uh, might even have different alignments. The, the second elf they put in is a wood elf, and this is a lot simpler. This is basically um, much, very much like the classic elf class, except they get druid spells instead of magic user spells. They, they, they also require a little bit higher XP. Am, am I reading that right? Are they requiring... Um, the XP is different. I'm sorry, I'm looking at these wrong. The, the, the phase elf actually... Um, let me grab my old school. I'm looking at Carcass Crawler. Let me grab my old school essentials to make sure I'm looking at this correctly. The dwarf. Where's my elf? The uh, 
Yeah, so, so both of these types of elves presented here, if you're going to use them as the class, they have much lower XP thresholds. Uh, I think the phase elf, because it's really not using the benefit of both classes at the same time. So it's um, it's on the, the 2,500 for second level uh, character advancement, which I think is much more uh, like a magic user in terms of the amount of XP you need to level up. And then the wood elf is a little more it's 3,000 for second, 6,000 for third, 12,000 for fourth. So it's on a 3,000 XP advancement, um, which is much lower than, a little bit lower than, than the uh, magic, arcane magic using elf. Um, but they're making use of druid spells. So to, so to use this, you would need to use the advanced, uh, at least the druid spell list from the, the, uh, Oh, I'm sorry, not Druid spell, the Divine Magic. So they're using the Cleric spell list. I would probably rule, given that it's a Wood Elf, if somebody wanted to play this, I'd probably let them choose the Druid spell list if I was using Old School Advanced. Um, I let them pick. So this is, I'll, if you just use the straight-up Cleric spells, you've kind of got almost a, a, a Wood Elf kind of paladin. Um You know what? I'm 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 stumbling over my words again. It is the druid. <laughs> it says divine magic in in one uh in one um, paragraph, but when you read down and it tells you where to look for their spell, is it is 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 giving you referencing you to old school essentials, advanced fantasy to get the uh, druids. And then it says if you're not going to use that, use the cleric list instead. Um, but not not let them have cure light wounds until second level. Interesting, because they get a spell at first level uh, as as a as a wood elf class. Otherwise, it's what you would expect um, with um, uh, some of the stuff from immunity, ghoul paralysis again, improvision, listening at doors. But wood elves also get a missile attack bonus plus one attack with missile weapons. Uh, they have an uncanny ability to disappear from sight in the woods and undergrowth. They can hide with ninety percent chance of success, and they have an awareness. Uh, they're only surprised on a roll of one. That might mean the Wood Elf is able to act in a surprise round when the rest of the party cannot. Uh, again, you get a, a, a strict race version of this if you're going to go full old school essentials advanced. It maintains the detect secret doors, immunity, ghoul paralysis, and improvision you would expect of elves. But it pulls in, the, as I mentioned before, the, the missile attack bonus. Um, I suspect they don't get the stealth options as a race that they would as a class because they can choose, uh, you know, assassin, ranger, and thief as a class, which would, would give them those abilities by class rather than I just being a wood elf. So those are pretty cool. I, I particularly, I don't know if I'm a big fan of the phase elf, um, but I do like the wood elf. Uh, but if a player really saw this and wanted to play the phase elf, I'd let them do it. It's their character, not mine. I don't think it would ruin a campaign. Um, but if I was going to, create a curated list of what, what you could do. I, I would put a, gladly put the Wood Elf in there and maybe be more hesitant about the Phase Elf. Um, we have Town Services. This is a really useful expansion, and this is really just a, a list of, of default costs for uh, food, drink, and lodging, and other types of in-services. Not in-service. Other types of services you'd get at an end, such as... Uh, a bath and um, personal services like having your your clothes laundered or having a barber uh, give you a trim, 
uh, private dining room, stabling and fodder. Once once they get um, your characters have mounts. Uh, the other thing that is really cool in here is they talk about the role of jewelers, money changers, and provisioners in uh, in, in towns and what kind of services they offer. You know, jewels are useful for for buying and selling gems and jewelry, um, and for appraising treasure. Money changers will uh, exchange one kind of coin for another for a fee, and also, you know, they serve as a kind of banker where you can put a bunch of money with them, and, and if as long as you leave it with them for at least a month, they won't charge you a fee if you try to withdraw it early. There's a there's a, a fee, and they might create loans. It says unlo- unknown low level characters can get a loan of up to five gold pieces with a deposit of a valuable item. Uh, for larger loans, the item value will increase. And there's a 10% withdrawal, 10%, the fee is 10% of the value of the loan per month. Well-known and respected characters might be able to get a better rate. Uh, and traders and provisioners um, can trade in common tools and trade goods. Um, so you can buy and sell equipment there. Um, and they also have a little uh, sidebar on guards and wards and talking about the types of guards uh, in terms of actually armed guards, um, security guards, traps, locks, and the things they'll use to protect the valued, the money and the jewels that they have, uh, that they keep in their workplace. Just in case a thief decides to, that they'd like to, to engage in a little bit of uh, burglary. And then there's an optional rule for haggling when, when uh, dealing with, with any of these professions. It, it's got a, a role on a 2D6 well, not so much for the money changers, but for the jewelers and traders, there's, there's a way of rolling a 2d6 and modifying it by charisma the same way you would a reaction modifier. And it tells you how they might adjust, uh, a jeweler or a trader might adjust an item's price. There's a little more, a section that's a little more on hiring retainers. Um, it's got some suggestions on local, localing, localing, locating potential retainers. Like frequently drinking establishments, posts on help wanted boards, um, and ways to, to, to import those into the game. Uh, where where you might be able to find, like the number of people you could find in a village, a small town, a large town, or a city. If you're if you're looking for just ta- townsfolk that you might want to hire as a porter or a torchbearer um, or a cook or something like that. Versus adventurers that are actually going to have a class. Uh, and, and, of course, the larger the settlement you get into, the more they'll, um, the more that you might be able to find. Townsfolk are, of course, zero-level humans. Adventurers are, um, are uh, treated as retainers. Uh, you can roll for random, or, you know, if, if you don't want to insert a certain specific type of retainer, you can just roll randomly to see who's available. Um and it's kind of cool. You roll a D12, and it's got the basic classes you would find in Old School Essentials, and then alternatives drawn from uh, Old School Advanced. Uh, wages, some, some suggestions on what kind of wage you, you would pay different types of, uh, of hirelings, and uh, how the applicant will, re- will react based on uh, things you can do to, to increase their reaction role with, with bonus payments, signing bonuses, generosity. Uh, how to deal with refused offers, and then it's got a sidebar for another optional rule on how you how you would treasure, how you would share XP and treasure with um, retainers. The standard rule is awarding XP 
they get a full share of XP, but then they lose half of it as a retainer. So they level up slower than everybody else. Um, and then they, they usually get a, a small, you may half a share of the treasure. But here's some other ideas on how to um, you just, just give them their XP based on their share of the treasure and give them a smaller share of the treasure because they're getting one as a retainer and not a full party member. Um, so again, some really it kind of just fleshes out what's already there and then gives you a couple of options. Uh, there's some quick equipment. This is a really cool thing that, uh, again, this, this section is again by Gavin Norman. Um, it's got, this is, these are default equipment packages for different types of characters. So for example, um, it's got armor, weapons, and extra items. So for say, uh, a dwarf, you roll a d6 on the armor table, and it's it goes everywhere from leather to leather and the shield, all the way up to plate mail and plate mail with the shield. So you roll you roll a d6, and it tells you what your dwarf roll, rolled one d12 twice on the weapons table. Um, what's interesting is the weapons table is is one to twelve, uh, but like a thief only gets to roll a thief gets to roll twice, a fighter gets to roll twice. Um, But like an, an acrobat, which is something they've they've brought in from uh, old school, old school um, advanced. You roll one d four twice, so you're you're going to be limited to these smaller weapons at the beginning of the table, as opposed to being able to roll one d twelve and get a chance of getting like a, a sword or a spear or heavy very we- weapon. Um, and then they've got, alternatively, they've got they actually have got specific for. for Acrobats, bards, clerics, druids, and knights. Actually, they've got separate tables. I'm, I'm mistaken. You don't roll a d4 on the d12 table. You roll a d4 on the acrobat table. I'm really not reading this very clearly tonight, am I? <laughs> and they notice an extra extra uh, item that, that some characters might have, and that's basically thieves' tool for a thief and holy symbols for divine spellcasters. Uh, except for a druid who gets a sprig of mistletoe. Um, but again, it's a really good way to randomly do equipment for uh, it says all characters have a backpack a tinder box 1d6 torches a water skin 1d6 iron rations and 3d6 gold pieces uh, and then you roll on these tables to to get out their starting gear um, and then finally what we get in here we get a, we get some new monsters that are themed around the concept of a snake cult uh, so some, some some newly created monsters that you can drop in anywhere you want um, some of them are kind of reminiscent of Yon T. Uh, some of them are are uh, more unique to uh, to I guess Gavin Norman's administration here. And then you've got uh, an adventure, the Tomb of Om Paroth, where you can use these snake themed monsters. This is a level three to five dungeon adventure, um, and it's it's laid out as a nice little adventure. So, um, and then what else do we have here? We've got a section on energy weapons. So in the last Carcass Crawler, they kind of gave us a, a kineticist class. that You could use it to kind of make a monk, but you could also use it to kind of make a Jedi-type character. So here's some options to bring in a little more sci-fi again with um, energy weapons, ion daggers, ions, ion weapons, plasma weapons, and laser weapons, uh, dagger, staff, swords, pistols, carbides, rifles of each kind. 
and then uh, electric cells and fusion cells to charge these weapons, which basically take the place of ammo. An electric cell, it gives you 15 charges. A fusion cell gives you 30 charges. And they have a, a rare item called a void cell, which basically, I think, powers the energy weapon indefinitely. So one of the things you have to do with, with these energy weapons is keep them charged up. Um, energy blades follow the standard class weapon restrictions. Um, energy weapons are designed for use in melee, consistent, yeah, uh, three types of weapons, blades, stabs, and daggers, swords. Press a switch to turn it on, turn it off. Um, and then the the guns, uh, non-martial classes can use pistols. Semi-martial classes can use pistols and carbides, but not rifles. And martial classes can use all types of guns. The DM will have to decide if clerics are able to use any of these types of weapons or not. Um, or any other class that might have restrictions on the type of weapons they're supposed to use. So, pretty cool. Um, and they got a little more description of like what the difference between a, a you know, a, a pistol, a carbide, and a rifle is in, in a, from a sci-fi standpoint. And the different types of energy ion is, which is a stream of charged particles, plasma, which is particles heated to extreme temperatures, and then a laser, which is focused light energy. Um, cool. And then they, they add another specialist. In the one where they it added black powder weapons in the previous issue, they added a type of specialist, the NPC specialist, which was a, a gunsmith. Now they've got a an energy weapon technician as a type of specialist that, that where you can probably maybe buy, sell, and have, have weapons maintained. Uh, and then we've got a section on item-based encumbrance where you just have a number of slots. Um, and rather than tracking weight, this reminds me a little bit, although it's not as complicated as the way Lamentations of the Flame Princess does it. Um, so you, instead of tracking weight in coins, you're just going to track significant items carried. Um, the interesting thing is that an item is classified as equipped or packed. Equipped items is anything you're holding, actively using, or you have ready access to on short notice. Armor shields, weapons that are held or, or sheathed, you know, where, where you can grab them on the belt or, or, you know, arrows out of a quiver or something like that. Packed items are equipment that are, are really deep in, into pockets, sacks, backpacks, or containers, and you have to take a minute to, re you have to take some effort to retrieve them. Um, it takes a round. So, so to, to get something that's packed in your, in your inventory, you have to, that's all you can do for the round. Um, You don't track the encumbrance of ammunition. One end weapons count as one item. Two ends count as two items. Shields count as one item. Light armor such as leather counts as one. Heavier armor counts as two. Um, the item weights of standard adventuring gear are listed in. Um, they've got they've got a little table over here. Um, And then treasure up to 100 coins counts as one item. Jewelry do not count as for anything unless it's a really large piece, and then it might count as one item, like a crown or or something like that. Um, magic items count as one item, except for magic stabs, they count as two. 
and it's got some how, how the use how this would affect movement rate if you if you were to use this. Uh, so an example, Morgan the fighter has the following gear: six equipped items: chainmail, a shield, a sword. So chainmail counts as two items. The shield and sword count as one items, and a short bow counts as two items, but that includes a quiver and arrows, for for, for with no additional thing. Four packed items: a rope, which is one item; a tinder box is one item; three iron rations, which are a bundle that counts as one item, and a water skin is one item. Looking at the encumbrance table, she has six equipped items, so her puts her at a movement rate of sixty or twenty with an encounter with is an encounter rate, and she has four packed items. So, so you, you look at the uh, what happens is you look at the uh, it's determined by the number of items carried. A character's equipped and packed items should both be looked up at the table, and the slower movement rate is used. So you, you don't pile them on top of each other. You just you just look at you know what are your packed items? What would, if you're only carrying those packed items? What's your rate going to be? Only factoring in your equipped items. What's your rate going to be? And you just pick the uh, the slower the two movement rates. Uh, so that's pretty cool. It's pretty easy. Uh, it's pretty simple. Uh, straightforward way of doing things. Of course, we're waiting on an expanded uh, equipment list, which is supposed to come out on a Carcass Crawler 3. They printed it in the issue zero that you got if you got in on on, on early uh, Kickstarter. Um, this has since been come hard to come by because they're going to slowly reprint all the content in, in, in these more widely distributed or widely available issues. So that, that expanded list is coming up in issue number three. I hope they'll give us uh, item-based encumbrance suggestions for any of those items along with their coin weight. And the last thing in this issue of Carcass Crawler is adjudicating traps. Um, so the role of traps in the game is a risk-resource trade-off, a challenge to exploration. Um, rolling dice. Old School Essential provides rules for rolling dice to find or remove traps. All characters can search for room traps, but thieves have a special ability to allow them to remove treasure traps. Uh, rolling dice to search for traps can be resolved very quickly. They just inform the re referee that they're going to spend a turn searching uh, an area. The referee marks advancement on time, rolls the dice, and also rolls for a wandering monster check if applicable. And the cons of doing it this way is the chance of finding traps by rolling dice tends to be low because it's, for most characters, a one in six. Um, Low-level thieves are likely to have a very low chance of finding treasure traps. So the party that relies on, on, on just rolling and searching uh, might be in for a bad time. There's also no rules for uh, disarming room traps that's just only bypassed or disabled by narrative interaction where the party kind of, you have to say, here's this trap, how do you guys want to try to to debug it? Because it's not really a thief ability. The thief's ability is really supposed to be about, you know, traps on treasure chests and, and doorknobs and things like that, not not really about uh, pit traps and, and uh, you know, the kind of pressure plates and things like that. Um, so players may buy the narrative interaction narrative interaction players can kind of bypass or disable traps by uh just thinking about trying to deduce what the the, the, the way the trap works and thinking of a way to 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 um, spring it without anybody getting hurt or to neutralize it or to to find a way around a way a reliable way around it 
Uh, handling traps with narrative interaction is often very effective, but he, he notes that detailed narrative interaction with the dungeon environment can be very time-consuming as players are kind of playing 20 questions with the DM <laughs> and having to do experiments to see what works. Um, the referee has to judge how much time passes when you use such methods. And here's some stuff on some ideas for making traps fun. Uh, planning clues or telegraphing so that players have a chance to kind of know you know, if it's if there's a poison gas trap or an acid trap, maybe they notice a chemical or odor. If uh, there's some kind of scythe trap, maybe bisect bisected skeleton laying on the floor, or some kind of marking that notes the passage of the you know a heavy blade has made an impact. Uh, traps tip by by default they trigger on a one and two one or two on a six sided die. Optionally, the trap fails to spring. The referee may give players a clue to its presence. For example, they might hear the click, even though Maybe the trap is old and rusty, and so they, they technically they, they stepped on it. It didn't go off, but, but they they were now aware that it's there. Uh, vermicillitude. Uh, another way to play give player hints is where to search for traps instead of avoiding the we search every square approach is to place them in locations that make sense given the layout and inhabitants of the dungeon. So doors to treasure vaults are important tomb or important tombs are naturally going to be guarded with traps. Monsters are unlikely to place traps in corridors that they're going to frequently traverse. Uh, if this approach is used consistently in appropriate dungeons, clever players can gain knowledge of traps in advance by charming monsters, interrogating captured dungeon denizens, and so forth. Not all traps need to be lethal. Traps that cause interesting problems, such as they're trapped in a net, and it takes them several rounds to get out. Uh, or the trap, it may, it may be a magical trap, transports characters to another part of the dungeon, uh, and they get disoriented and have to find their way back. Uh, and he ends it with, with, with a section called Savoring Character Death. Finally, it's important to note that character death is an intrinsic part of old school play, especially at lower levels, and players are advised to learn and enjoy the tragic, gruesome, and comedic deaths of their characters. And that's that's it for uh, Carcass Crawler number three, or issue number two, I'm sorry. I think the one thing I will immediately put into the game is just these town services um, as a reference. And uh, just because people need to know how much it costs to get a, a pint of ale or, or some a meal. Um, those are, those are probably the things I'll most immediately implement. And then I might, if we start a new campaign, might be tempted to use the item-based encumbrance. Um, but I really like, and uh, like I said, the wood elf as, as an option for, for player characters. But that's Carcass Crawler number two. And that'll just about do it for this episode. This is kind of a long one, but... Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening. Thanks again to Joe Richter of Hindsightless for his call that we had to start the show off. And uh, appreciate everybody out there, wherever you're listening from in the world. I hope you're doing well. Take care of yourself. And I'll be back with another episode uh, sooner or later. Bye now. Thanks for listening to the Arcane Alienist podcast. The music you're hearing is Come and Get It by Scott Holmes Music. The cover art I use for the episodes is by Dave Bone. Be sure and check out his website, ironseer.com, for a lot of other great gaming-related content. You can always leave me a voice message through the Anchor app or at the Anchor website. 
or you can email me at arcane.alienist at gmail.com. Once again, I appreciate you listening. Thanks so much.